0: Loving God, please be with us now as we think about an important time in Jesus' life on earth and the things that he had to say. Would you help me to speak clearly and all of us to listen with our hearts to hear what you want to teach us today. May our priorities be those that Jesus showed. In his strong name, amen. Luke asked me to speak from Luke 14 about the justice of Jesus. And I gave this reflection that I'm about to say at Winderley last Sunday. And ordinarily, it would be exactly the same words this week, here. But what a week it's been. We've referred to it lots of times. It's a week when many people are asking, where is justice? When in many parts of the world, including here today, there are tears of despair being shed. No matter how we voted in the referendum, there's no joy in its outcome, because the issues of pain and deprivation and powerless that underlie that are still there, and it's been acknowledged by both sides of the argument. We have to somehow find a way in our country to move forward with justice and compassion at the heart of the actions. But for those in Israel-Palestine, especially those in Gaza right now, it is hard, I find it just hard to breathe thinking What life must be like today, waiting for violence to rain down with even more ferocity than at any time before, or trying to escape when there really is no escape. And for our Christian friends in these places, like Johanna, who Ian has mentioned already, it's a time to call out to God and ask where is the justice and what does that look like right now? And how does Jesus want his people there to act So then we have to think, what did Jesus say that leads us to think about justice and how important it is to think about the justice of Jesus, especially at times like this. (laughs) So as you hear these words and we think about our own responses, I hope we can hold in our hearts those for whom life has become a whole lot more horrible in the past week. So here we go. Don't you think it's funny that in our society we tend to value certain things as serious and important and worthy of great discussion, or maybe of sermons, and other things as simply domestic, just the stuff of life, as if it doesn't matter as much. Politics, economics, taxation, public affairs, they're all topics for serious discussion. Uh, the things that we spend most of our lives doing, being at home, maybe cleaning them, perhaps in the garden, Having our friends over, visiting them, they seem much, much less worthy of serious thought or examination. And yet, it's at home in those domestic situations where we're really ourselves. And our characters show themselves most. Actually, it shows it smells most at our house one hour before anybody comes to visit, when I turn into an absolute harpy saying things to Ian like, do you really think this is a good time to sit down and read the paper? When the the table's not set and the salad's not made and here I am in the kitchen. And this is all so that I can make it look effortless when people walk in the door. Ah, One of the things I've noticed about the Gospels, though, is that although Jesus spoke about some of those serious issues, of course, it seems to me he spent much more time on things that we would call domestic. And a lot of that is around meals. In fact, I read a book recently that said, Jesus ate his way around Galilee. (laughs) That's not quite fair, but meals and hospitality certainly do feature a lot. Including in our passage today, Jesus was often in people's homes, where just like with us, their true characters are best able to be seen, the good and the bad. In Luke's writing, both in his Gospel and in Acts, meal times are taken very seriously and he writes about a lot of them. And he's not the only one of the Gospel writers to do so. Here are some, and the first one is one that only John mentions, but of course, Jesus' first sign, or miracle, was making excellent wine to make a memorable wedding reception. In Luke 5, tax collector Levi holds a great banquet for Jesus, and the Pharisees complain, of course. In chapter seven, it's the first recorded time when Jesus visited the home of a Pharisee, and that's the time when the woman, who's described as sinful, came, bringing an alabaster jar of perfume, and wept, and wiped Jesus, and poured the the perfume over Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. And when that happened, the host's response was, outrage that Jesus had let himself be touched by a sinner. Jesus showed hospitality to all those people on the grass, didn't he, when he fed them with the five loaves and two fish. And his visit to Mary and Martha in chapter 10, when a meal is being prepared. And sometimes I think Mary and Martha might have been a little bit like Ian and me, just when people were coming. He he took the better part, although the newspaper's not quite sitting at (laughs) Jesus' feet, is it, to be fair. In chapter 11, Jesus is invited again to the home of a Pharisee, and this is when he's taken to task for not fulfilling their requirements of ritual cleansing. And this is when you find out that Jesus was not always a comfortable guest. Boy, he really let them have it for their pernickety adherence to rituals, but their neglect of the important things like justice and care for the poor and the real love of God unmarked graves, he called them. Woe to you, he said to them three times, not a comfortable dinner guest. There's the passage we're looking at today, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but of course later there is the last supper with his disciples just before his death, which we remembered a minute ago with the Lord's Supper here, and we do each time. And then after the resurrection and into the book of Acts, there are quite a few meals around the birth of the church. So here in Luke 14, this is the third time we hear about Jesus eating at the home of a prominent Pharisee. And this time, for the first time, it's the important Sabbath meal. It's not a simple invitation. He's being watched carefully by those who are there, probably so they can gather evidence against him because that's what they very much wanted to do. But Jesus is not going to be trapped into not being who he is by their scrutiny. And so a man comes in with a swelling illness, a kind of edema, or dropsy. It would have been very painful. Now he might have been planted there to trick Jesus. That's what they did quite often. We don't know that for sure, it would make sense. Evidently at that time, dropsy was thought to only happen to gluttons. So they could all easily look down on him and say, well he's only got himself to blame about that, without acknowledging their own greed which will be very much on display in a minute. So Jesus heals, sees the man and heals him, even though it is the Sabbath. But first he asks the ones who were ready to trap him, is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath or not? Effectively, what do you think? What do you think I should do? Will I heal him? Because presumably they knew he could heal him. And they didn't answer at all. So he held the man, he healed him. The NIV said, and he sent him away, but actually that can also be read as, and he released him. And perhaps he released him of his sin, as much as of his pain. And then after he's done it, when presumably they're looking at him with that look of scornful contempt and anger and outrage, saying this is just what we'd expect from you, he says, well, wouldn't you rescue a child or a valuable animal that was falling down a well if it happened on the Sabbath? And they had nothing to say. Why? Because of course they would. Of course they would. And this man is a child of God, and so deeply precious. What else do we know about this man? Absolutely nothing. He is identified only by his illness, which causes him disability and pain. But Jesus sees him and doesn't hesitate to meet his need. He matters more than any of their mean interpretations of the Sabbath rules. Jesus knows why he is there, why he has come, and nothing that they are doing can make him step back from it. Here, this is Jesus demonstrating something that he's going to talk to them about, teach them about in a minute. Remember what Jesus had said in his first sermon that that is recorded in the Bible? in the tabernacle, quoting Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he says, I am the fulfillment of those words. It's huge. By healing on the Sabbath, Jesus is declaring that he is the one with the authority to say what was God's intention in instituting the Sabbath, not the Pharisees with what they'd turned it into. Their approach, lacking compassion, mercy, love of God, was wrong. This is the good news that Jesus has come to proclaim, or it's part of it. I see you, I see your need, And I am here to help you and free you from your pain. Ultimately, I am here to save you. There's much more behind it. But part of what he's saying is you matter to me and that means you matter to God. And the life I bring is more than just pain. The year of the Lord's favor, the kingdom of God is here and is coming. It's not all spelled spelled out in words, but it's demonstrated in immediate, compassionate action. And so, then it's time to eat. And what an unedifying spectacle that turned out to be. Jesus watched as the others who were there, eager to have the places of honor, and assuming their right to them, had a bun rush to the table. I imagine them elbowing each other out of the way. And so he told them a story, with spiritual, not just practical, significance. Luke calls it a parable. Although, on the surface, it seems more like pragmatic advice. Don't assume you belong in the top place. Instead, wait till you're invited there. Otherwise, you're going to look pretty silly. But then he says some very profound words. It is a parable. He says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is where he's talking about the upside-down kingdom of God. There's a great banquet, but it's not for those you'd expect. Instead of being for the entitled or the proud, it's for the humble. Claiming glory for yourself is gonna get you nowhere because it's God who decides who will be raised and who will be humbled. And then, turning to the host, he really proves himself to be an uncomfortable dinner guest and I just love imagining this scene. When you invite people over, he says, and I imagine him looking at all the people that have been invited that day, he says, when you invite people over, don't ask them, the ones who can can repay you or add to your social cachet. Instead, invite the ones who cannot give you anything at all. That's the generosity that God will reward because that's the generosity that looks like God Because in fact all of us who love Jesus are invited to a feast in the kingdom of God but not because of our greatness or our worthiness. There is nothing we can do to repay God for his generosity to us. He gives to us everything we have out of generosity and all we need in order to accept it is humility. In a sermon on this chapter, Tim Keller told a fabulous story, and here I am telling it to you, so it comes from the great Tim Keller. He said, imagine somebody invited you out to a meal, and he says, come, it's the best restaurant in the world. It's got the best food, it's got the best ambiance, it's got the best views, it's got the best stuff, it is the best restaurant in the whole world. And you go, great, I'd love to do that. I'll just nip home and get a couple of TV dinners and I'll microwave them and bring them along as well and we can think of it as a potluck. (laughs) And your friend will say, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm inviting you to the best restaurant in the world. There is nothing you could bring that would improve it. And if you think you can, I don't want to take you there at all. Those who are welcome are the ones who know they're not entitled that there's nothing that they can bring that makes them worthy to be there. That's all of us. Here, in this, they're described as the poor, those with disabilities, those who would ordinarily be left out of any guest list. But really, none of us has anything to bring, to add to the provision and generosity of God. So really, all of us are those who come with nothing to the table of the king. And as a sign of that, and out of simple justice, Jesus says, when you show hospitality, model that. Include those who can't repay you. Those who would ordinarily not, you would not ordinarily think to have around your table. And you'll be honoring God and his priorities in the kingdom. So here's a good question. Does this mean God's only interested in the poor and the oppressed? Where does that leave those of us who could rightly be described as entitled? That's why I love this too, because Jesus goes on to say, when you do this, when you invite those ones who are not usually seen, I'm not saying it's gonna be horrible for you. You too will be blessed. You matter as well. And there might be wonderful surprises in store for you. Jesus is all about justice to those who are overlooked, those invisible or despised people, but he's also about blessing and promise for all who love him. He came to bring abundant life. He blesses the giving as well as the receiving. Now, there's an example of this, and Jenny, this is when this photograph would be great to see. Just as I was thinking I'd finished preparing this talk, I'm having a little scroll through Facebook, as you do, a friend of mine posted a picture on Facebook. Now I bet you've all seen pictures like this. Six women, six, seven women, six, no, six women, um, out together, now what do you reckon, a book group? Maybe a group of friends went to school, perhaps some nurses, well let me tell you. The one who is third from the left is my friend Melita, and Melita is Serbian. And the other women in that group are from Serbia, and Bosnia, and Croatia, and Macedonia, and they're all together to do some Christian ministry in Latvia. They could all reasonably still be enemies. All of them remember the atrocities that happened in their countries in the 1990s and since. But they are sisters in Christ, welcoming one another and showing hospitality. So I wrote to Melita, and I said, "I'd love to show this photograph to our church," and she said, "Oh, we'd be delighted." So. So that's a really lovely thing. She is a total joy. She's involved with Langham preaching. They see one another, they know one another as people and as children of God. But thinking about what else this might look like, I also consulted the South Asia Bible commentary written by scholars from India and Pakistan and Nepal and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, who all worked together to do it. And this is what I read written by an Indian man. He says, this passage is all about generosity without reciprocity, giving from top to bottom. Status is a privilege that brings with it the responsibility to be generous and compassionate. In a multiracial, multilingual, caste-divided society like ours, he writes from India, this is a huge challenge. There's so much more that we could say about the justice of Jesus, there's so much more, but here's one thing we know. The justice of Jesus has to do with paying attention, caring about, knowing and loving those who are otherwise overlooked, the oppressed, the invisible, the poor. It's about humility and not pride. But what about here? Do we model the upside down kingdom? by listening to the voices of those whose voices are not heard? Do we reach out with generosity and friendship to those who can't repay us? Do we really hear them? Do we listen to what they ask for? I'd say that this is pretty close to the bone for a lot of us this very week here. But I also want to acknowledge that there are people in this room, and I know it, and you know it, many of us know it, who do embody this a lot in what they do in their life and I'm so grateful for them there are a few I could name and many more of you who do things for people who can't give back to you and I don't even know that you do and that's humility and the ones that I do know wouldn't thank me for naming them so I won't do that but instead I'll tell you about my friend Jackie Stoneman some of you will know her I went to the she was my boss at, um, Mary Andrews College for quite a few years, Jackie and I traveled to the United States and I discovered something very funny about Jackie and delightful. And my kids laugh at me because I nearly always know something or sometimes quite a lot about a taxi driver if I'm in the car, and I always know the name of the butcher. But anyway, they laugh at me about this. But going, I've got nothing on Jackie Stoneman. Taxi drivers, doormen, street people, random strangers in lifts, the concierge, Jackie sees them all, talks to them all, and by the end of the conversation, they know she's a person of Jesus, but she has never given them the, you know, she's the kind of ultimatum, but they know, and they know that she's seen them. And it does not make for a quick walk down the street. I can tell you. She and those of you I'm talking about remind me of a favorite passage in a favorite book. I wonder if you've read it. It's a book by C.S. Lewis, it's called The Great Divorce. And it's based on a theological dream sort of vision that Lewis had. And it reflects on the Christian picture of heaven and hell. And it's a very odd book, but it's wonderful. And if you haven't read it, please read it. And if you haven't read it for five years, please read it again, because it is wonderful. But in the in the story, the narrator is taken on, at one of the things that happens, is the narrator is taken on a tour of heaven by a guide, and actually, the guide is C.S. Lewis's favourite author, George MacDonald. In one place, they come across this wonderful procession. Here's a little snippet of what they write, everybody writes. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men. They danced and scattered flowers. Then, on the left and right, at each side of the forest avenue, came youthful shapes, boys and girls. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, No man who ever read that score would grow sick or old again. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady, in whose honour all this was being done. And only partly do I remember the incredible, unbearable beauty of her face. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, he said. It's someone you'll have never heard of. Her name on Earth was Sarah Smith and she lived at Golders Green. <laughs> she seems to be a person of particular importance. Yeah, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that, that fame in this country and fame on Earth are two quite different things. But who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing, and throwing flowers before her. Ah, haven't you read your Milton? A thousand liveried angels. Lackey her. And who are these young men and women on each side of her? They are her sons and daughters. Oh, she must have a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No, there are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Every person, beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. How wonderful to be seen by Sarah Smith of Golders Green because she serves Jesus. How wonderful when we are seen by one another. Sometimes when I'm teaching pastoral care, I do an exercise and I know that many of you have seen me do this before, but I think it bears repeating just very quickly. I want you to think about a time when you had something big on your mind, something going on, you had a story to tell and nobody would listen, nobody saw you, you felt what? I want you to think, just take a moment to think of a time and I, I, I keep saying I don't want to hear the story, I do want to hear the story sometime but right now, What I just want you to think of is how did that feel? How does it feel? What are the feeling words for what it's like when you have a story to tell and nobody listens? Tell me the words. What are the words? Alone. Alone. Deflated. Deflated. Deleted. Deleted, oh gosh, yes, that's powerful, Ken. Bullied. 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 Invisible. These are negative words, aren't they? They're big words. Alone. Yeah. Now I want you to do another thing. Think of another time, or maybe that's the same time, and then you found somebody who would listen. Think of the time when you were listened to, or seen. And now think of the the, the words. Tell me some words. How do you feel when somebody sees you? Somebody hears you and listens valued, encouraged, validated, restored, restored. yes, uplifted in spirit, loved. Now the only thing that's different between those two things, what is it? There's nothing different except somebody gave you the time, the respect and the care to notice, to listen to you. Because that's what God does for us. God is a listening God, and that's what he wants us, his people, to do. He is a God who listens. I hope it's what we do do for each other here at Alive at Five, but if you're someone who comes and doesn't feel that, I'm so sorry, and I hope that we can do better. I want us this week to think, how can I practise noticing who is right there? And to finish, I want to read you some words from, Nadia, from a woman called Nadia Boltz-Weber. She's a bit of a character. Um, they're particularly relevant because we have just celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Nadia Boltz-Weber, who is six foot something and does weightless lifting and has maiden tattoos and a kind of necklace of tats, and she's, but she's brilliant. And she was a, a drug addict when God saved her and she believes saved her for people who were like she has been in her life. And so she's a Lutheran minister at a church in Denver, Colorado, that's called The House of All Sinners and Saints. These are some words that she wrote. She said, Jesus left us with a way to glimpse the world where God's kingdom reigns, where domination is done with and all lies have ceased. And he gave us this on the night he was betrayed, when he gathered around the table with his faltering friends for a meal that tasted like freedom. And that table is long. In fact, it stretches through time to fit all who have ever gathered for his kingdom meal. That's us. The Lord's table has always extended to gather in all who hunger, ever since the night he instituted this meal of edible, drinkable Jesus forgiveness. This table has extended to cross borders and razor wire and occupied land. It defies all protocols of empire. Here at his table, the deceivers' claims to a merit-based, race-based, gender-based, income-based seating chart are eternally invalidated. Here is a foretaste of the kingdom. One thing that strikes me, has struck me all through, thinking about this, seeing Jesus in that room, and thinking about preparing this is you know in in all possible universes the jesus we are called to serve might have been a horrible violent despot but the jesus we are called to serve is the one who the humble one who came for us out of love and grace and goodness The one of whom these words were written, and we read them in Philippians, just very much to finish. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself